0: If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of James, James chapter 5. And this morning, our goal is to finish the book of James as we look at verses 12 through 20. The title of the message is The Church in Action, Uh, The Church in Action in verses 12 through 20. So if you've found your place, say... Word? Okay. Let us read. Follow along as I read. Verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you is sick and strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. <coughs> As we approach this passage this morning, <coughs> we see that James is really summing up the teaching that he has been, we've been walking through in all of the epistle of james and he is drawing to a close and he he highlights three specific different things in this in this text and one that he highlights first is this issue dealing with the tongue a chaplain of the Kansas state senate prayed this prayer before one of their senate meetings it said he said omniscient father help us to know who is telling the truth One side tells us one thing and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling us the truth, we would like to know that too. And if each side is telling half-truth, give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if that was prayed in sincerity or tongue-in-cheek. I would hope that it was prayed in sincerity. But when we come to a passage like this, especially a verse like verse 12, I don't know if it has perplexed you, When you've read a verse like this, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. But I think it can be kind of confusing when we approach a passage like this. But really at the heart of what James is saying here is he's calling us to an ethical imperative for God's people. There is an ethical imperative that James is calling God's people to walk by and to live by. And first it is that that ethical imperative is we must be a truthful people. If you left your windows down, you're in trouble. All right? <clears throat> so James is calling us to be in a truthful people. And the first point that I want us to see this morning is we must be truthful. We must be a truthful people for the glory of Christ and for his namesake, for we are called by the name of Christ. And it is the very standard of God, it's the very standard of Christ, that we would walk in truth. As Christians, that we would walk in truth. And so he says there in verse 12, that we would not swear. Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. What does he mean here by swear? Swear. Does it mean that we should guard our mouths from cursing? No, that's not what James is talking about here. He, he says that we should not swear. And J- James is telling the church that we, we should not be about taking oaths. And so to be certain, oaths are when a man or a woman makes a statement, a, a promise of agreement that's made between two people. It's an oath. An oath between men in this day was, was an oath that would invoke God's name. And as one who would invoke God's name in an oath, he or she would be bound to that oath. Because if they would break that vow to God, they would be inviting divine punishment from God on their life. Now for the Christian this was based upon the Old Testament law from Leviticus chapter nineteen verse twelve and other places as well, but one particular place, Leviticus nineteen, twelve, which says, You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In Ecclesiastes five, four, and five, Solomon our the preacher, he writes When we make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. Fulfill your vow. He has no pleasure in fools. It is better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. So the issue here is making a vow and not fulfilling it, or or taking an oath and not fulfilling it. It became a common argument that this Old Testament law left a loophole allowing for men and women to be honest with God and keep their vows to God, but to be dishonest with others. consequently, the rabbis taught people people must fulfill their vows to God. But then they began teaching, you don't necessarily have to keep your vow to others. You see the problem with this for the Christian community. So James says, do not swear by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Why does he say this? Well, I, I think he says it because people were really the same then as they are now. Why do we need contracts today? Why do we need these big legal forms? And Because people are deceivers. People deceive. People lie. And it, it was no different then than it is now. Or it's no different now than it was then. Oath-taking had become a mode of deception that invoked people or deceived people for personal gain. And oftentimes it was amounting to little more than a legal contest to see who could craft the most believable oath and at the same time still leave a loophole so that they could wiggle out of keeping their promise. The intention had really become to deceive from the beginning just to see if a person could get what they want and cheat someone else out of something. And most likely James is speaking here about not swearing by heaven or by earth or any other oath. He's, he's really speaking about considering whether or not this oath is binding. And in this day, an oath such as this to swear by heaven or by earth was not a binding oath because it did not invoke or call on the name of God. And so that's why James says what he does there. But the problem was that these oaths inevitably invoked God and they inevitably usurped the authority of God. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus gives us an example. He Really, the text is very similar and really parallel to what James is saying here. And Jesus gives us some insight when he says this. He says, "...but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king." And then he takes it a step further and he says, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, what Jesus was saying and what James is saying is that we really don't even truly have authoritative power over our own lives. We can't even make a hair turn white or black without some chemical anyway. Not naturally. We can't make our hair turn white or black The ethical imperative for the believer is this, that the Christian life must major on truth and not on deception. The Christian life must major on truth and not on deception. You know, when I was a child, I remember a common saying that was shared on the playground. And I would assume that it has been this way for generations. In fact, I would like to test it out this morning. I'll say the first part, and you you finish it. Cross my heart and hope to die. I thought so. Yeah. Stick a needle in. Now, when we would make that statement, you know, it was I really wanted someone to believe. I wanted to entice someone to believe what I was saying, even though I really probably did not mean what I was saying. I wanted them to believe what I was saying. But really, by this oath, we probably didn't understand what we were saying. If we would really rationally look at this oath, we would begin to break it down and understand that we're saying, we would infer that, well, I'm so committed to what I'm saying that I give you permission to torture me by putting a needle in my eye and then taking my very life if what I'm saying is not genuinely true. Now, I want to submit to you that as a child, when you said that on the playground, you did not mean... You can stick a needle in my eye and take my life. But why did we do this? It was, it was deceiving. It's amazing how early we begin learning and crafting the foolishness of deception. It really speaks to our nature, right? It speaks to, to who we are outside of Christ. In fact, Jesus said in John eight forty four, You are of your father the devil speaking to the religious leaders of the day. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Tough words. So, the second command that we have here in verse 12, right off, he says, Let be. Literally, that's the command. Let be. But it's worded like this, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You see, what James is driving home here is that we must say what we mean and mean what we say as the people of God. What we say matters. Our words have weight. In other words, oaths ought not to be necessary. They should be unnecessary in the life of every believer because the believer ought to be known for speaking truth and being a person of his or her word. Every believer ought to be known as a truthful person, one who you can count on. When they say that, they're going to do it. When, they, when this comes up, we, we know they take a stand against it and that's not part of their life. David's, in his commentary, makes this observation. He says, one way of saying this is let your yes be a true yes and your no be a true no. Let your word be an outer yes, which is truly an inner yes, and your word be an outer no, which is truly an inner no. Some of us need to work on that. Being truthful in what we say and letting our yes be yes and our our no be no. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says it this way, Radical truthfulness will set the believer apart from the world and will yield power in the lives of believers. And then he goes on to say, A truthful spirit is a great evangelistic tool. I've known people who were drawn to Christ because they saw this quality in a church or an individual. Truthfulness will be, for some, as tantalizing as a cool drink in the desert. Need I remind you, the great desperation of truthfulness that we need today. And it ought to be the church of God living in such a way, the believers living in such a way that we are are all about radical truthfulness, that we want to live lives of above reproach, that we want to be people, men and women of Christ, who are known for letting their yes be yes and their no be no for being honest and dealing with integrity and having character. Why? Because it points to the glory of Christ for His namesake. We are to be a truthful people for the glory of Christ and for His namesake. But there's more than just the ethical imperative for God's people in this passage. In verse 13, James begins teaching us about the praying imperative for God's people. And in verses 13 through 18, this praying imperative that he's calling the church to is one where he commands us. It's commanding language. James reminds us of the great need to be people devoted to prayer in everything. And so the praying imperative for God's people, for believers, means, first of all, that we trust God in all seasons of life. We trust God in all seasons of life, look at what he says in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? What's he say? Then he must pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. The New American Standard rightly catches the, the imperative language here. He must pray. She must pray. Is anyone suffering? Anyone having struggle? Any suffering that, that, that's coming into your life? Then he must pray. Suffering certainly paints the picture of this congregation as James is writing to them all the the struggles and hardships that they've been walking through. From the beginning in chapter 1, consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith develops endurance, right? Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then pray and ask God for wisdom to know how to walk through the trial and then we see there there are some who are hungry and going hungry and eating food in the midst, and then there are others that are that are withholding and, and enacting social injustice upon the people. Suffering certainly paints a picture of this congregation. Trials and temptations were assailing the church. Physical circumstances, social injustice, and personal situations causing great distress were all part of the makeup of this church that James is writing to. But notice what James says. The first place the believer must turn in the midst of suffering, when we go through trials and temptations in times of suffering, the first place we must turn is to one another. No. No. Then he must pray. Then she must pray. We come before God in prayer. When we are walking through suffering, the first place we turn, we ought to turn to God in prayer. We ought to cry out to God in prayer, for He doesn't intend for us to bear it alone. In Psalm fifty fifteen, the psalmist, our God says, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. It was Edward Mote who was at least credited for writing the famous hymn on Christ, the solid rock I stand, which one of the verses says, our verses says, when darkness hides his lovely face. I rest on his unchanging grace, right? When in the midst of darkness I can't see, I rest on his unchanging grace through every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. He is the one who who keeps me grounded. He keeps me in his sovereign will and in his hand and in his protective power. In the midst of suffering, the believer is called to come before the Lord in prayer. In prayer, we come humbly before the Lord. We come before Him as the Lord of hosts and we communicate with Holy God in His very throne room. Hebrews tells us we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We bring our suffering to God in prayer. What about you, believer? Have you been bringing that suffering to God in prayer or have you been trying to fill that suffering with other things to ease the suffering? physical circumstances, injustice socially, kids picking on you, grief in the midst of death, Emotional duress, financial hardships, debt, wayward children, unbelieving spouse, broken marriages, difficult life situations, single, looking for a mate, life of celibacy, same-sex attraction, dealing with a haunting sin of the past, suffering. James says in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of life, in all of life's situations, come before God, bring it before His throne. Then He must pray. Oh, He calls us to pray. There's one place where you and I can find healing for the sin sick soul. It's in prayer. James commands us to pray in the midst of suffering, but not only in the midst of suffering, we we must not only come to God in the midst of suffering, but he also says when we're cheerful, we come to God when we are cheerful. Look in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. If we are cheerful, we are to sing praises. This word for praise is the same word in English that we have for the word psalm, meaning to sing praise to God. Here's the point, believer, when you're joy filled, do not forget God. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. James already said that in chapter 1, verse 17. Don't forget God when we're in the midst of when we're on the mountain. When we're full of joy, we cannot forget God. We must then be singing praise to Him. That's a different type of prayer, but it's singing vocally, praising the Lord. When we come on Sunday morning to worship Him, we we sing praise vocally with with our voices. And if we're walking through suffering, then we pray. We come before Him and we praise Him. You see, if we only turn to God in seasons of suffering, then then we're only abiding in Him half the time. We must also turn our cheerfulness and our joy-filled living into praise and praising God. But the praying imperative for God's people goes beyond trusting what It's trusting God in all seasons, but it, it also encompasses a re- responsibilities among the body. One of which we see in verse 14, the elder's responsibility in prayer. This is a passage that many... Many people don't want to preach, especially dealing with this verse in today's culture. He says, is anyone among you sick? To be distinguished from suffering, suffering in verse 13 is different from sickness here. Suffering is physical struggles in verse 13. Sickness here is the illness, the physical illness that comes upon a believer and so I, I want to give a few points here to note as we walk through this first one is that number on your outline, sick, number one. Is anyone among you sick? This word sick, it, it really means to be suffering a debilitating illness, to be weak, even perhaps at the point of death. This is the word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 40, uh, 14, verse 40. Luke 4, 40, excuse me. It says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he was laid his hands on every one of them, and they were healed. This speaking of the ministry of Christ, those who were sick. It's the same word used in verse 14 here. Is anyone among you sick? The second note that we need to make is that these sick believers were called exhorted to call upon the elders of the church the sick believer is not exhorted to pray here you notice that i mean we have that in verse 13 is anyone among you suffering then he must pray is anyone cheerful then he is to sing praises is anyone among you sick we might expect that he would say then he must pray I don't think James is negating the need to pray for the sick believer here. That's not the point. But what James is saying here in verse 14 is, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray. Perhaps this is because their sickness has left them in a despairing situation and really in need of the ministry of the saints, in need of the encouragement maybe, in need of the replenishing of their soul and the... The body of the saints and the, the elders coming around, the, the ministry of the elders coming around to lift up and to pray and to take concern and to exercise pastoral care in the life of this one. Most likely the believer is too sick to go to the elders, so he or she calls the elders of the church to come to them. This is what's happening here in verse 14. So he says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. The third note I want us to see here is that there is a responsibility of the office of elders in the church. The responsibility threefold. First, he says, and he must pray. They must pray over him. Pray here is the main action. And over meaning to lay hands on the sick one. They are to pray over him. That is, the sick one is on his deathbed, or her deathbed perhaps, are, are in very great illness. And, and they call out to the elders in the midst of their physical distress. And in the midst of this, uh, th- this trying season. And say, come and pray for me. And they go and they pray over this one. Anointing him with oil. Secondly, they pray over him. Verse 13, they anoint him with oil. What does this mean? Is there something special or magical about this oil? Is there something that's communicated through this oil that we are to see as mystical? No, I don't think so. In fact, the point of the oil is it's symbolic. It's symbolic of consecration to God. God. And what James is saying is these elders come in and pray. They anoint this, this sick one with oil. It doesn't have a medicinal value. They anoint the sick one with oil in order to symbolically set this one apart, to sanctify this one who is sick. We know that the Holy Spirit, the indwelling every believer, is, is the one through whom the power of God is, is bequeathed into the life of the believer, into the life of God's children. So what he's saying here is to anoint him with oil. It's to consecrate this sick one, to set him apart unto God. And then thirdly, in the name of the Lord is how it is to be done. That is to call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. To invoke the name of the Lord is then to pray according to the authority and according to the power of Christ. When we cry out to God in Jesus' name, the power of God is supplied for his glory and not for Mans. Praying in Jesus' name means praying according to His good, acceptable, and perfect will. And so this praying imperative for God's people they are to trust God in all seasons, then we see the responsibility of, of elders in prayer when they come and they pray for the sick one and, and they, they, they lay their hands and they pray over. But I want you to continue to see the responsibility of the office of, of elders and then the prayer of faith that is prayed. This prayer of faith is the prayer that expresses trust in God as sovereign Lord. So these elders come praying a a prayer of faith. They are trusting in, in, in God as sovereign Lord. They are coming before him and 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 trusting in God's righteous hand and his power in the life of the believer. And the prayer of faith is even could be defined as back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Thus, the prayer of faith is one that seeks the wisdom of God, which God gives to all generously. One commentator says, The the prayer of faith is best identified as knowledge of God's will for a particular situation when no scriptural guidance is available. The fifth The prayer of faith, it yields two results. Do you see those there in verse 15? The two results that the prayer of faith yields. First one it says, and the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. The New American Standard says restore there. But the word that's used in the New Testament is the word for save. It's the word for salvation. So so follow me here for a moment. You notice that he says the prayer of faith Saves will save the one who is sick or will restore if you have the New American Standard. But what he doesn't say is he doesn't say will heal the one who is sick, but he says will save. I think that's interesting because down in verse 16 he does say, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man avails much or can accomplish much. And so the word used here is the word for salvation. And in Luke chapter seven verse fifty, I just want to follow me here for a moment. In Luke seven fifty, there's the uh, the harlot that comes to Jesus when he's dining with his uh, dining in the house, and um, she begins to weep and washes his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair, and then anoints. His feet with oil, precious ointment, precious oil. And in doing so, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then after he tells her her sins were forgiven, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you, is what he tells the woman. Well, this is the exact same phrase that's used in Luke chapter 17. If you want to turn to Luke 17... Verses 15 through 19. This is the occurrence of the ten lepers when they come to Jesus. Ten lepers come to Jesus and they need to be cleansed and healed. And when these ten lepers come. After they Jesus sends them off and tells them to go and perform this duty that he tells them to. Verse 15 picks up where he says now one of them. When he saw that he had been healed, the word for healing from sickness, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well is the same exact phrase that's used in Luke chapter 7, verse 50 to say, Your faith has saved you. In fact, that word well there, it's the word for saved. How does that impact James chapter 5? Well, it's the same word that's used in James chapter 5, here, verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, will restore, will heal, will save, as the ESV reads, will save the one who is sick. That's important because there was something different for the one that did not occur for the nine other lepers who were cleansed. They all were healed But when this one returns by faith, there's something different and distinct that happens for him. He is saved. It's his faith that has saved him. Really, there are two implications that we need to see here in chapter 5 of James Two implications at work. One is the security of salvation in the believer's life through the prayer ministry of the elders, and the other is healing that we see happening in verse 16 so that it occurs as a sovereign act of the Lord. There is a very real sense here of the elders coming before this sick one and praying over this sick one. And as the elders come and pray over the sick one, they anoint the sick one with oil. And as they anoint the sick one with oil, praying over him, they pray in the name of the Lord, in the power of the Lord, and they pray according to the name of Christ. And then he says, and the Lord will raise him up. But you notice in verse 16 what James says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I'm sorry, back in verse 15 at the end of the verse, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. We're all sinners, right? Every one of us have sinned before the the Lord. We, We are all sinners. So what does James mean when he says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, or they will be forgiven him. Well, there's a couple of points that James is making. One is that, if we take this in context, we begin to understand that perhaps there was a struggle that the sick one who's on his deathbed or deathly ill is struggling in the midst of maybe some besetting sin in their life and they call on the elders to come and anoint them with oil and pray and there's a security of salvation component here. We, we must see that. Then there's also the physical healing here. And that physical healing, you see, first off, the Lord will raise him up. We need to see, even if we look back to chapter 4, verse 15, instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, right? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, trusting in God's sovereign hand. And so it's the Lord that will raise this one up. If it's God's sovereign will for this one to be physically healed, the Lord will raise him up. And then if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. This, there was a common thought that anyone who had sinned or who was sick must have sinned. If someone had a very bad illness or sickness, then they must have sinned. They must have done something to, brought, to bring this sin upon themselves. A common example of this would have been in John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 where the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus replied and said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. You see, and the point is, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. It doesn't necessarily mean that when we walk through sickness that there is sin in our life, though it can certainly mean that, and Scripture also says, illustrates that for us in First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty nine, with the Lord's Supper. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And so there's an elders responsibility here, but there's also a congregational responsibility. And I want you to see the congregational responsibility. We see it in verse 16 with the call to prayer for the congregation. Therefore, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You see, this is a shift from the elders praying for the sick one to the entire congregation praying for the sick one. And in the entire congregation praying for the sick one, he says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. You see, forgiveness forgiveness of sins is always attached to confession of sin. And when James speaks of healing, there's no doubt that he's speaking about physical healing. But I also think he's speaking about spiritual healing. Because the presence of sin in our lives is a spiritual sickness that we walk through. And so this is really a call for the church to be a a people of communal confession. as, As a community, as a body, we confess our sin and here's what it does. And here's what James knows. He's telling the church that this ensures the health of the church body. We spoke about this briefly in our recent members meeting. And it, it was noted that, that giving was down and we spoke about the need to be good stewards and watch every penny and make sure that we were uh, we were just guarding every, every cent that we have and that we spend. But we also took some time to pray and to seek God on behalf of our congregation to cry out and to confess if there would be any sin in our midst that we as a church it might be revealed to us and to confess it on behalf of our church and I think the point is this church that we we must guard our fellowship and our community from being one that tolerates sin openly that's what James is telling them we must guard our fellowship from being one that readily accepts sin in our midst And James says that the way that we do this is through confessing our sins to one another, which it calls us to humility before God and before one another. It calls us to walk as a humble people. It calls us to be humble. You know, there's no room for pride in the life of the disciple of Christ, is there? We must be a humble people and so the prayer of the righteous person is, is a prayer that has great power as it's working. When we pray in righteousness before God, we're praying in the center of His good and acceptable and perfect will, and we are aligning our lives with His. And the righteous, the righteous here refers to all members of the community of faith who are in good standing, living confessional lives. James gives us an illustration of that in verses 17 and 18 with the prophet Elijah. He talks about this prophet Elijah and he shows us that he, he calls us to have boldness in prayer. This example of Elijah, he, he points out, was a normal man in verses 17 and 18 with a nature like ours. Yet when he prayed, he was bold in prayer. He prayed and there was no rain for three years and six months. How many of you are that bold? And pray that God would withhold the rain for three years and six months. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore fruit. And I think the point that James is making here is that he's, <clears throat> the point is that being, being much like the parched, dry, and lifeless ground of the earth, so is the believer's physical body in the midst of sickness, and so can be his soul or her soul through the valley of the shadow of death. And the answer to this dry, desperate season of life is the reviving of the body and the soul so that the barren life might bear fruit once again. And here's what he's saying. This only comes through fervent prayer of the righteous saints. The only way it comes is through fervent prayer of God's people. Not just the elders, not just the deacons or the Sunday school teachers or the leaders of the church, through every member, through one another. It happens through confessional living and through fervent prayer and intercession. Elijah was an ordinary man gripped by an extraordinary calling. You and I are no different when we yield to the righteousness of Christ. So the question is, will you submit your life to Christ in all things? The last point quickly, the wartime imperative for God's people in verses 19 and 20. The wartime imperative for God's people I say wartime imperative because that's exactly what we as believers are engaged in. It's spiritual warfare. It's a battle. In verses 19 and 20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. In verse 20, we have the command, Let him know. Are, in other words, know this, catch this, see this, pause and just sit on this for a minute. Know this, recognize, be assured. This is the communal aspect of Christ centered living, this is the church in action. Listen, one of the greatest ways that we can love one another in Christ is to humbly hold one another accountable in walking with Christ. That's not always easy to do. It takes much prayer. It takes removing logs from our own eyes, right? It's not always easy to do. I have a good friend that was the collegiate minister at the BCM at uh, Louisiana College for a while, and what he would do is that when students would come in he would um and you know, they'd meet up and of course as students do, my wife and I met in college through the BCM, they, they begin they begin dating and uh college students, you know, and we we like to stay up late as college students and so there's there's a real ease there for a temptation to be together late and to be tempted in ways that aren't necessary that we could really avoid. And what my friend would do is he'd sit down those college students whenever they'd come in and they'd start dating. He'd say, now listen, I want you to know this from the beginning. He said, I am going to go to bat for your purity. I will go to bat for your purity and I will hold you accountable. See, the life of the disciple of Christ must be oriented really to the reality of the kingdom of God God has ordained that his people live in community and experience community with one another through the church. For we are the body and bride of Christ, which God has created to live in unity and in harmony with one another. And James is telling us that we are to live with accountability to one another. We cannot live the life of the disciple of Christ apart from being connected with other disciples. You see, church, we must go to bat for the purity of one another. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we become religious zealots. It doesn't mean that we begin judging one another's actions and living pharisaical lives, but it means that we must live confessional, repentant, and humble lives. Our perspective ought to be this, church. It, it begins with me. That ought to be our perspective. It begins with me. It starts right here with me. So James says, know this, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, eternal consequence of death. He who turns a sinner from the error of his way and will cover a multitude of sins, speaking of the forgiveness of Christ. So the ethical imperative for God's people is we must be truthful for the glory of Christ and the praying imperative for God's people is we must trust God in all seasons. We must live out the responsibility of boldly praying for one another as Elijah and we must have the wartime imperative of God's people. We must live confessional lives and go to bat for one another's purity. I invite you this morning... To spend some time in prayer. Does this describe where you're at? Maybe it speaks to a particular need in your life or a particular struggle that you're walking through. I want to invite you this morning to just submit yourself before the Lord and ask God, What are you what are you calling me to? How are you challenging me today? And as we do that, Angela's going to come. The worship team will come. And I'm going to close us in prayer. And I want to invite you this morning to respond as the Lord leads you. Let us pray. Father, we come before you humbly, knowing, Lord, that we are clay. You're the potter. God, that you see all things in our life. You know all things. And as a church, Lord, it is our great desire that we would be a church in action, a truthful people, a praying people, a people who live in community and encourage one another. So, Lord, teach us, show us if there's anything in our life that's that's holding us back or hindering us from living in such a way. Give us the strength to confess that before you, for you already know it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand.